0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. So, La Gratia, and for that, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, strongly Encourage you to do so. And just before we jump into that, this past week, uh, close to or uh, right around a thousand pastors and leaders at the VCC conference that we were able to host. And let me just say, one of the comments I heard the most, and the Lord uh, did so many great things, um, but just so many people came out to me and just had to express um, the people that were serving at the conference, people from Harvest Oakville, from the parking lot to greeting to hospitality and food, and just what a blessing it was to see that there's an understanding among our people here in our church. Uh, The chance to love pastors and leaders as they come here and then go are sent out literally across the world and how encouraged they were and so specifically encouraged by so many of you who gave up time and um, energy to serve the Lord because you love uh, him. You gotta know one of the great visions of this church too is we're excited about what God's doing here but we want to be such an encouragement to the church as a whole as well and to equip and however God would allow us to because the greatest win is not just this church being built up but it's the church being built up and so the way that you represented Jesus the way that so many of you were so full of love and joy that's another thing too and people are so filled with joy and so loving and so uh, filled with grace and so that is such a blessing for the leader and elders of this church to hear, and we just express our love and appreciation for those of you who did serve and praying as we go on, part of our culture as a church, with this more and more and more, giving ourselves for the cause of Jesus Christ and the love of others, all right? So you be encouraged with that, and I want to just pray for us now as we enter into God's word uh, on that note as well. Father, I do ask so much, and I do pray, God, that you will take this time now and continue to bring encouragement to continue to bring correction, to continue to bring clarity. God, today we talk about your grace. Wow, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And I pray right now you will be dispensing grace, the person of Jesus, among this church. Father, I wonder too, and I have to believe, there are some here even right now that are sitting here but apart from Jesus that do not know Jesus, have never truly understood grace. In Jesus' name, and I pray, church, you would agree with me in this. In Jesus' name that you would allow people to see the gift of grace in Jesus for the first time. You will save them, Lord, from death. You will allow their eyes to be opened. And just as the gospel of joy exploded through the Reformation, that the same thing would happen here today among so many listening to this now. Please, Lord, that's why we're here, to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so may your truth be heard. May your Holy Spirit speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the feedback from our series so far has been very encouraging, and as was anticipated, many for the first time are discovering what took place within the Reformation. I know there's many of us that did not know the five souls, what they were, or that they even existed. So many are seeing the jewel of the gospel in a new light, and certainly the jewel of the gospel shining in a new context as well, as we understand the context of the Reformation. You got to know from my part. For for many in weeks, you're studying and you're learning about this. And what I love so much, what I get to do, the grace involved in this moment right now, is that I get to kind of learn and 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 discover truth, and then come and say, "Look, look, check it out. This is so awesome." I kind of describe it as a little bit of divine show and tell, right? So my uh, kids have still have show and tell. At least my younger girls, they do. They'll have a bag of stuff. They'll bring it to school. And here's my doll, and I love my doll. And here's a here's a seashell I found by the seashell and you explain it to their class and and here's maybe a picture of our family and whatever it is and they love to show again and tell of what they uh, have gathered. Well that's really what we're doing right now isn't it? Many of you maybe will know these things already but we're reminded together and the gospel never gets old so how fun and how right is it that we get to pick up God's word and say look, look, look at this treasure look at how beautiful he is, look at what God is doing, look what God has done and then look what God wants to do now uh, in our midst and so that's what a a joy it is for me and for us to do this together um, as well, so speaking of of showing and telling our series is outlined through these five solas, which we should be knowing by now, and I just want to go through these right now kind of theologically and in the logic in the order that they are presented. so today we um, stumble upon sola gratia, grace alone, but let's start here, so sola scriptura, scripture alone, scripture ultimately it starts. First, I believe here because without Scripture there are no solas right? So sola scriptura reveals ultimately solo Christo. The Bible, if it's boiled down to one message, is the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's everything. He's it. He's the most important person in history. The gospel of salvation is revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. So scriptura reveals uh, Christo, solo Christo. Now, but Christ came to give what? To give the gift of life, which is called grace. So sola gratia is 100% related to solo Christo. Scripture reveals Christ, and Christ comes to give the gift of grace. So la fide, faith alone, faith is played. Our object of faith is in Jesus Christ. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of grace by faith. So it's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And then all of this, of course, is solo dea gloria. All of this is we are living to the glory of God because these are what these truths reveal. Beholding the Lord Jesus Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18, again, for the glory of God. This is why it's so important what we're doing now, and I pray that we're excited to do so. It was a 21-year-old Martin Luther. He was caught in a very violent storm walking to university one day when out of nowhere, a lightning bolt smashed him to the ground. It was there he was absolutely terrified. He exclaimed, St. Anne, help me, and I shall become a monk. It was a promise that he made out of tremendous fear of God and death, it's a promise he would keep. And so began Luther's quest for merit with God in the monastic life. And in many ways, you gotta understand, Luther loved it. You see why? Luther loved being a monk because Luther's deepest fear was death. His deepest fear was dying and then having to stand before a righteous God that he could not add up to in judgment so becoming a monk was his plan this is very this is very key here. be careful to listen. becoming a monk with, was Luther's plan to become more attractive to God and therefore to try to earn God's favor. Now that's a very important phrase because can you think about how we do that as well? In our attempts in religion? We try to polish ourselves up with our works and our efforts and try to do good deeds or whatever it is, be a good person to make ourselves more attractive to gather and gain God's attention that we might ultimately gain God's favor. Here's what Luther would say about this as we try to make ourselves more attractive before God, which is a false gospel, of course, which is the way our world works, right? Luther said this after he was born again and truly understood the gospel. He said this, Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. There's a major difference there. I'll say it again because some of you are trying to think that through. Sinners are not attractive because they are... Sinners are attractive because they are loved, right? Because because God's love is upon them. That's what makes them radiant and attractive. They are not loved... Because they are attractive. That's what our world says. Uh, The the more beautiful you are, the more smart you are, the more you present yourself, the more that your identity is in yourself, the more that you can kind of appeal to other people, then you're loved because they find you attractive. That's not the gospel. But try, Luther did, to make himself attractive before the Lord. For instance, every few hours he would leave the time of... tiny monastery cell and make his way to a service in the chapel and starting with matins or morning prayers. He would say these prayers in the middle of the night, then another at 6 a.m., then 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. and so on. In his quest to try to please God, he often took no bread or water for three days at a time. He was quite prayed deliberately to freeze himself in the winter cold in the hope that he might please God. Driven to confession, listen, he would exhaust his confessors, taking up to six hours at a time to catalog his most recent sins. Wow. Yet the more he did, here's the problem with religion, but the more he did, the more troubled he became. Was it enough? Were his motives right? Luther found himself sinking into an ever deeper introspection. It was here he realized that all his good conduct and religious behavior, okay, here's the problem of religion. All his good conduct and religious behavior was only disguising the problem, not solving it. Whereas he was coming to see God as a loveless tyrant who demands perfection and gives nothing but punishment. Because he couldn't add up to God. His efforts were never enough, right? So he says this, quote, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinner. And secretly, I was blaspheming him. Certainly, I was murmuring greatly that I was angry with God. It was not long after this season of Luther's life, he would begin for the first time to discover, by grace, the gospel of grace. And he also began to discover what is our first point today, which is this. Solo gratia, by grace you are saved. Solo gratia, grace alone, by grace you are saved. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 1, okay? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, notice, and were by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In these first initial verses, loved ones, the beginning of the gospel journey is seen here. Now notice where the gospel journey needs to start, according to our verses. It starts here. It starts with death. Now that's interesting. we wouldn't often say it in that way, but it's true. Again, notice why the five solos were absolutely critical because they recovered the gospel. And if we're going to see the true gospel, we must see the beauty and the glory of the gospel, which starts with the understanding, verse 1, that in our sin, we are dead. And those who are dead in sin, verse 2 says, we walk around like spiritual zombies. We are following the course of this world. We are following the prince of the power of the air, who of course is Satan, so we're dead in our sin, we're zombies following the world Satan. Verse 3, it gets worse though, because of the passions, the sinful passions of our flesh and body, of our body and mind, the text says here, we were by nature children of wrath. So see again why the five solas are absolutely critical to address man's greatest problem. What is the greatest problem of man? We are dead in sin, and because our sin is a rejection against a holy God, we rightly deserve to be punished because we have rejected God, gone against him, just as Adam and Eve did in the first sin in the Garden of Eden. They said what they weren't supposed to do. They did it. They rebelled against God. They went their own way. They selflessly pursued their own desires desires and passions and lusts. They were banished from the garden. We're no different. The greatest problem of humanity is we're dead in sin. We have rejected God in that sin. And therefore, we are rightly under the wrath of God. So think about it then. These are the greatest problems we could ever have. And the answers to these problems, dead in sin, under God's wrath, are the most important questions we would ever want to answer. They must be the highest priority of our lives. Think of the anxieties that fill our lives on a daily basis. Think of the things we worry about that are so temporal and often meaningless and things that matter not in terms of eternity. Think of then the problem of being dead in sin under God's wrath that it had infinite implications and eternal ramifications, we have to get this answer. How are we saved from sin? How do we escape the wrath of God coming upon those who reject him? This is what the Reformation did. This is why the Reformation is so staggering and mind-blowing. It was the rediscovery of the life-saving, joy-producing, eternal life-giving gospel of grace. Now remember, if anyone understood their sin, it was Luther. I mean, this part he had down pat. What he did not understand was the good news of the gospel of grace. It was all legalism. It was all religion. It was all self-effort. It was all trying to earn favor, which you cannot do as we will learn. Here's what Luther said about this on the screen for you. He says, it's true. I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say it that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this. For if it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death. What with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. Here's the plague of religion right here. It's never enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions... The more daily I found it, more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled I became. So Luther had the bad news of the gospel. He had that down, but he did not know, and what he needed was the good news of the gospel. Now let's be smart here, okay? Let's, let's understand. Uh, a lot of the church of today say, hey, come follow Jesus. Why would I follow Jesus? Well, it makes your life better. Come, come, receive him. It's going to be great, man. he are get happier and more and give you stuff and it'll be a great life. See, now that's not a true gospel, right? You can't understand the true gospel and just have the good news. You must understand the bad news. If a person receives Christ not knowing what they've been saved from, they haven't received the true gospel and cannot be truly saved. There must be conviction that leads to genuine conversion. You must know why Jesus Christ died. You must know that it was your sin that put him there. So the bad news of the gospel necessitates the understanding of the good news of the gospel. I am a sinner dead in sin under the wrath of God. And then when you see that Jesus Christ paid for your sin and bore God's wrath and all your forgiveness is found in him alone, then all of a sudden in your sin, you have a reason to believe and rejoice in the life-saving message of Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. The bad news must set up the good news. This is the reality what happens within the gospel, okay? So the bad news verses one to three, now the good news verse four. Look at but God. Amen, church? But God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places, notice, in Christ Jesus. Now the phrase there, look at verse 4 carefully, the phrase, but God, has been termed one of the greatest phrases in the entire Bible. Think of what's being said here, right? In our context, we were dead in sin but God. We were spiritual zombies following in the trance of Satan, completely unable to see, but God. We were children of wrath, rightly deserving his punishment. Listen, but God. You know what's critical in understanding the gospel is to understand that God doesn't owe us anything. God is not in a place where he has to intervene. There's nothing that God owes us in terms of grace or love or mercy. You know, humanity always wants to talk about what's fair. What's fair? That's not just. That's injustice. How come this isn't fair? That's not fair to me. Do you know what's not fair? Or do you know what would be fair? It is 100% fair for God to leave us in our sin. He's not responsible for our sin. He didn't do it. We did. That was our choice. Our choice of rejecting and rebelling against the Lord. It was our sin that has put us in this place. We're responsible for our sin, not God. God doesn't owe us a single thing in terms of grace and love and mercy. But then we see, but God. But God being rich in mercy. But God in his lavishing great love with which he has loved us. Those two words, but God, speak of what? They speak of the intervention, the intervention of God in our miserable state, having no hope on our own, but God, here comes love, here comes mercy, here comes favor, here comes grace. That's an important point to think about a little bit and just to sit there and say, wow, but God, the intervention of God in my life when I was deserving of punishment and death and hell itself, Reminded me of a time, I was in Israel a few years ago, and woke up, but we were staying inside the old walls of Jerusalem, and I woke up one morning, I said to myself, it was early, Joe was still sleeping there, and I was like, we know what they say, went in Rome, but in this case, went in Jerusalem, right? So went in Jerusalem, I said, I'm going to go up and go for a run, got my iPod, put some worship tunes in, and said, man, very everyone listen to worship music, this is the time to do it, right? So I went out jogging. It was early, man. I was out there with the Orthodox Jews. They were kind of going there and their whole kind of get up and they were going to pray and here was this kid from Canada. I had like my basketball shorts on and kind of look all rugged, you know what I mean? Kind of run out. Are you allowed to jog in Jerusalem? I'm not really sure, right? So, but I started jogging around and I found myself and I was going out here and where of course the Temple Mount is and I found myself right in the corner and then walking up this or jogging up this kind of path. There's a pathway here which is of course the Muslim quarter here in the Dome of the Rock and everything and I was right here and then like the sun was just kind of rising, and I had in my ears the tune Jesus Messiah by Chris Tomlin. And I just stopped there and I looked, and this is one of the most kind of top five moments of perspective in my entire life. Okay, try to enter in with me here. So I'm standing there and there's no one around. Like, no one. I'm looking kind of left and right. And I'm like, am I allowed to be here? You know? Uh, maybe I'll get shot or something like that. I didn't even know, right? I just kind of like, maybe I'm not supposed to. There's no one, there's no one. It's just me. And the Lord, and I'm literally, so this picture is taken from the Mount of Olives. I'm looking across the Mount of Olives. I'm looking over at where Gethsemane is. And that's where Jesus was sweating drops of blood in anguish to bear the wrath of God for me and for you, and then seeing the place where Jesus would have uh, ridden down in the donkeys, he entered into the city, willingly allowing himself to be subjected to later on being falsely accused and betrayed and tortured, and ultimately outside of the city crucified on the cross to bear my sin, and I sat there in a moment, and all this, it was just, it, be, it became too much for me, it became too much for me as I sat there, and I said, wait, wait, this is 2,000 years later, Harry. I'm a kid from Canada in a continent they didn't even know existed, and Jesus Christ, in his love, and God the Father, in his mercy and grace, he sent his son to take on flesh, who in this very place lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, took on my sin and rose from the dead and defeated death so therefore 2,000 years later some punk kid from Canada who deserves nothing but punishment would be his eyes open to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and I would be forever saved and can sit there singing worship and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that I am alive, I cannot lose I'm going to heaven, I'm redeemed, I'm restored I'm reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ and all of this theology and truth came all washing upon me, you can only imagine and the tears started to well up in my eyes and stream down my face. Listen, all that to say, but God, but God, his love, his intervention, listen, his grace, he did not need to do this. I want you to look at verse four and five again. I want you to see something. But God being rich in mercy, the great love which he loved us, notice, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ Okay, now watch this. There's a dash in my Bible. Is there a dash in yours? The ESV has a dash. And what happens here, the sentence in the Greek would make more sense if it skipped out what's between the dashes. Made us alive together with Christ and then right to verse six, and raised us with him. The flow would be better there, but it's almost like here, it's not almost, this is what happened. The Holy Spirit by Paul says, no, 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 just in case you're wondering how you're saved, just in case there's any question, how you are made alive in Christ Jesus. Let's just drop this in right here and make it abundantly clear. Oh, by the way, you are made alive by grace you have been saved. By grace, gratia. the only way you are saved is by grace. Just in case there's any confusion whatsoever. You are made alive in Christ. You are raised with Christ, seated with Christ, but it's all by grace that you are saved. Grace. 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 What's so amazing about this grace? Why is sola gratia so mind-blowing? Here's why. Ready? Grace is not ultimately a thing. Grace is a person. Grace is Jesus Christ. The personification of grace is solo Cristo. Sola gratia must be intimately. It has to be precisely connected to solo Cristo. Grace is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is grace. When we place our faith solo fide, we place our faith in Christ, we are taking hold of the possession of Jesus Christ who becomes our grace. Jesus is grace. So therefore, if we follow this theological train then, grace is life. Grace is forgiveness. Grace is peace. Grace is 100% Jesus Look at um, Ephesians chapter 1. You shouldn't even have to turn a page. Ephesians 1, notice verse 5. Hey, Let's be students of God's word. Notice for solo Christo and solo gratia here, intimately connected. The very end of verse 4. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, solo Christo, according to the purpose of his will, notice, to the praise of his glorious, what's the next word? Grace, so solo gratia. So watch, solo Cristo is intimately connected and must be connected with solo gratia. And notice verse seven, in him, in Christ, we have redemption, here's the gospel, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Christ, solo Cristo, uh, forgiveness, redemption according to the riches of his grace, solo gratia. You can't have Christ without grace. True grace is Christ. True Christ is grace. By grace you are saved. In Christ and only Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians 1 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All of life is found in Christ. It's not us. We can't earn any of this grace. There's there's no foreseen human action that can earn you grace. Um, God never looked ahead in your life, sister, and said, okay, I'm going to look ahead in her future, and she's going to be a good person, and she's going to do acts of grace, so therefore I will give her grace. That's not how it works. There's there's, there's no merit we can ever find for ourselves to add to the grace found in Jesus Christ. There's no contribution, zero percent. We don't add zero 0.001% of anything good or gracious within our lives. We can do nothing to earn favor with God. Nothing. No effort of holiness by man will ever earn favor of God in terms of grace and salvation. Again, that's why Ephesians 2, right in the middle, describing our salvation by grace, you have been saved. And this is astounding news when you really understand what it's saying. But the problem is, in our day, we take it for granted. We start to yawn when it comes to the grace of God. You know, um, in the context of the Reformation, though, they weren't taking this for granted at all because they were suffering on the religious system of death. And the moment they see grace, man, they are exploding with absolute joy and delight and love. But this is why J.I. Packer says, he says, in our day, amazing grace has become boring grace. Question, has God's amazing grace become boring to us? When's the last time we've been truly amazed by grace? Again, have we been yawning at grace and saying, God, where's my, where's my vending machine? God, give me the things I want to give. But haven't taken the time, you and me, haven't taken the time to truly be amazed by the grace that is only found in Jesus Christ and just how much is staggering and how much He has done for us? Just consider how the hymns begin to express the wonders of God's glorious grace. Here's how James Boyce puts it. He says this, he says, here are the phrases used in the hymns themselves to describe grace on the screen. Abounding grace, abundant grace, amazing grace, boundless grace, fountain of grace, God of grace, indelible grace, marvelous grace, matchless grace, overflowing grace, pardoning grace, plenteous grace, unfailing grace, immeasurable grace, wonderful grace, the word of grace, grace all sufficient, and grace alone. Wow, this grace must be amazing. It must be amazing. Amazing. Notice in verses 5, 6, and 7. Notice this mind-blowing, unmerited, undeserved, inexhaustible grace. This grace of Jesus saves us. This grace raises us, verses 5 and 6. It causes us to be seated with Christ, verse 6. And one day we will be glorified in Christ because of grace, verse 7. The immeasurable riches of grace only found in solo Cristo. Jesus Christ is Grace. I mean, honestly, like solo gratia, wow. Wow. In fact, this is a great time to turn to someone and say solo gratia, wow. I encourage you, go ahead, have some fun with it. I mean, really, solo gratia. I mean, when you really get it, really? Wow. Grace. It almost seems impossible. I know it's too so good to be true. Welcome to understanding the gospel of grace. Sola gratia, by grace you've been saved. Secondly, solo gratia, this grace cannot be earned. This grace cannot be earned. I state this point in the negative because this was the great error of the Roman Church. The Roman Church taught, at the time of the Reformation, they taught that grace could be earned. That grace is something that we contribute to, and hence the great cause of the Reformation. This is one of the great reasons the Reformation occurred, because they understood you can't earn grace. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Here we go. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, through faith, you've been saved. Notice this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Is the Bible clear? Bible's pretty, why are so many people thinking they can earn salvation? So many people are being taught. They're sitting in church today across this land, believing that good people go to heaven, that if you're good enough, you earn salvation before Christ. Where are they getting that from? They are not getting it from the Bible. They're getting that from some false system and some false gospel. Here's what the Bible says. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm just telling you what God says. Look at how clear it is. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And just in case you're wondering what that means, it is not your own doing. And just in case you know what that means, it's a gift of God. And just in case you know what that means, it's not a result of works. Just in case you know what that means so that no one may boast. God is so clear. It's not us. It's grace. It's a gift. It's received through faith. I mean No wonder then the Reformation you pull up the truth like this and the joy, the freedom. Think of Luther doing everything he possibly could to earn favor with God. Starving himself to death. Sleeping without blankets in the night. How dumb is that? Right? And yet he thinks somehow when he suffers that all of a sudden God's more pleased with him. No, there's one who suffered. Jesus Christ. And because he suffered... He paid for all the suffering that we would ever have to go through. And he gives the gift of grace that we might receive eternal life. Now, now, when it comes to the teaching of grace within the Reformation, in one sense, in the context of the Reformation, the idea of grace would be affirmed by the Catholic Church. They believed in grace. okay. But what happens was it wasn't grace alone. It wasn't sola gratia. What was added to grace was the teaching of works. So they would believe that grace is there and grace by faith, but it wasn't grace alone, faith alone. It was by grace, by faith, and works. And that's still taught today. So it's not sola gratia; It's grace through faith and works. So the teaching that was summarized in Luther's day came down to this. Here's what the church taught. God will not deny grace to those who do their best. Now let's be theological students right now. Why is that a problem? God will not deny grace, great, to those who do their best, not great. Because all of a sudden then, the onus is on those who try the hardest. Michael Reeves summarizes it this way. Grace would be given to those who wanted it and pursued it badly enough. And it's saved only insofar as it enabled people to become holy and so win their salvation. See why this is so unbiblical right now? How dangerous this teaching is? So grace then, grace is given to those who try the hardest. But if we earn grace by what we do, it's not grace. Because it's no longer a gift. We've earned it. Then we take credit for it and we get glory for it because we did it. Not God, not Jesus. It's not grace. Grace by its very definition is getting what you don't deserve. It's a gift. You are in the gift, it ceases to become a gift. This is why Luther in 1510, he went to Rome. Now you gotta understand, for the monk, Luther, to go to Rome, this was like the greatest privilege of his entire existence. You're going to the venerated city, to visit venerated places, to see venerated relics. So what happens is, man, it's like you're going to the holiest of holies, and you go there, and this is, this is double, triple points with God now. You are, you, are, you are gaining so much grace just by being there, because these are the sites held up in the highest sacred tradition. And you go do these things, you say these prayers, as we're going to hear in a second, you do certain acts, and you are you are taking up massive points with God. This is where the doubt started to seep in with Luther a bit. This is when he became disillusioned with what he saw, were gross abuses in the church, the hypocrisies within the priests... He became disenchanted by the pilgrimages to adore religious relics, people worshiping objects. Here are some of the objects. We're going to get into indulgences next week, Lord willing, with Sola Fide and some of the ridiculousness of the relics that happened in his time. But apparently Rome says that when, when, when Luther went to Rome, apparently they still had the rope with which Judas uh, hung himself with. That's impressive. Um, they claimed to have a piece of the burning bush from Moses. Really? Like, Really? They did. They claimed to have that. Um, they also said they had the um, chains of Paul that he was changed to within the New Testament. Here's the worst part. They claimed to have that Scala Sancta, the holy stairs. The very steps that Jesus descended from Pilate's judgment hall had been moved to Rome and that God would forgive the sins of those who crawled up the stairs on their knees kissing each step. So Luther dutifully climbed the stairs in the appointed manner, but when he reached the top, he despaired. Quote, At Rome, I wished to liberate my grandfather from purgatory and went up the staircase of Pilate, praying a paternoster on each step, for I was convinced that he who prayed thus could redeem his soul. But when I came to the top step, the thought kept coming to me Who knows whether this is true? See, that's the plague of religion. Is it good enough? Have I done enough? Have I climbed enough stairs? Have I kissed enough concrete? Have I said enough prayers? Am I in the right status with God? How do I know it's enough? It's the plague of religion, man. You never have peace with God because you never know if he's satisfied and you never know if the work has actually been done. And so you live in a term of guilt and shame, your entire existence, so fearful of dying because you're so afraid of ending up on the wrong side of the tracks when it comes to the forgiveness of God and actually getting into heaven. If only this kind of false religion was gone today. But it's not. My wife and I were in Quebec City a few years ago celebrating an anniversary. It's a beautiful city. It's so beautiful. We be had a great time in but at the time we were there, a church in Notre Dame, right in the heart of the old city. It's a beautiful church there, but I saw something I'd never seen before. They were holding what they were calling um, the holy door. They had a door that was brought, and it's called the holy door. And so I was very curious about this and Okay, what is the holy door? Well, apparently it was the first time that it was brought outside of Europe. And what happens is the Pope commissions this holy door, and it happens like in a year of jubilee or something like that. And so... In this case, I think it only happens kind of once every 25 years and it appears in certain places. But the idea is the door is opened and when you walk through the door, you receive a plenary indulgence, which means that you receive um, remission of sins and a decreased punishment in purgatory as you walk through the door. You are supernaturally cleansed somehow and then you go through, you receive mass and then you pray to the Pope and then you're in a better standing with God. The key is, though, the Pope only opens the door for a certain amount of time, so it's a limited time only. You better get there, and don't miss your point. You have to wait 25 years until you do it again. Like, I'm not kidding, man. This is the way it goes. So I'm sitting here trying to take this in. My wife and I are looking at this, and the lineup is so long. People traveling all over the place. They come here because they honestly believe when they do this act and they walk through this door, somehow God likes them more. What do you do? You just sit there and almost weep. Really? And this is the religious system. But if you walk through the door, but what about just decrease in punishment? But then there's you got to do it again. You got to do more. What about And you start to follow this path of shame and guilt and lies that will never truly earn you grace again. How can you ever be good enough? You see, if if you believe that, right, and that's how you lived your life, then all of a sudden, what happens when you open up Ephesians two? What happens when you see the truth of the gospel? How did you realize by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it's a gift? And you're like, "Whoa, wait, wait, wait! You're telling me it's not how many stairs I climb because there's one who walked down his stairs to his death that paid for every sin I've ever committed in Jesus Christ, and by His grace, that He offers to me through faith and believing in Him that I'm set free and I'm forgiven." I mean, enter joy, enter, enter delight, enter ecstasy of the gospel, enter freedom, enter blessing. Enter, I can't believe this is true, that Jesus Christ set me free as I simply place my faith in what he has done. You mean my sin on Christ and his righteousness on me? I know, it's incredible. It's the gospel. It's the biblical gospel that many, many millions of people in our day desperately need to hear that they may be set free from sin and death and punishment and set free from a bondage of religion. Where they will show up at the end and Jesus will look at them and said, I never knew you. I never knew you, but Jesus, I went to church, I prayed, I did these things, I walked through doors, I don't and He's like, You did not know my son, you did not know me. I never knew you. Absolutely tragic. Here's the wonder of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is so incredibly powerful, it's so incredibly astounding. Here's the reality: when you and I are saved in Jesus Christ by grace through faith in Christ, okay? Here's the reality. God the Father looks at us then with his Son in us. He looks at us as though we have never sinned. Never sinned. Why? Because he just sees his Son in us. Even more than that, he looks at us as though we have always obeyed. Always. How is that possible? It's the grace of Jesus Christ. Nothing we deserve, not one thing we've done. doesn't matter how hard you try. The gospel of grace eliminates all of that. It is all about his provision for us in him. He looks at us, I'll say it again, some of you are like, I don't, really, what? I can't, no way. When you are saved in Jesus Christ, God the Father looks at you as though you have never sinned, ever. I admit, I struggle with that sometimes because I see my own sin. I'm like, how can this be true, man? I'm just so unworthy. And yet I gotta remind myself, this is true. Not, not because of what I've done, because of what he's done, and who he is in me. And the Father looks at me as though I've always obeyed really? I don't deserve it exactly. I'm not worthy exactly. That's amazing. Exactly. That's grace. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther, in describing this exchange, put it in the metaphor of marriage, the marriage of a divine king with a prostitute, a harlot, sinful, ah, sinners as his bride. On the screen, he says this, Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his brides and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, listen, listen, how shall he not give her all that is his? If he takes the body of the bride... How shall he not take all that is hers? See what's happening here? This is, this is the greatest truth ever. This is the inexpressible joy when it's received by faith. Can you see why then the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, here's an artist's rendition of what this would have looked like. Okay, it's, just a, it's just a rendition. Just, we don't know what exactly it exactly look like. But the sinful woman, the, the woman of the city, the prostitute, it, somehow, some way, she understands Jesus Christ is grace. In all her sin, in all these guys, these religious people around who are scorning her and can't believe Jesus is letting her do this, she comes in, she sees Jesus as grace. She sees solo gratia and solo Christo. She knows he's forgiveness, he's peace, he's life. He's inexhaustible in mercy and grace and love. She gets all of this all of a sudden. The wave of God's spirit fills her and she knows as sinful as she is, he is the personification of love and grace. This melts her. This destroys her in the best possible way. She walks into the house of the Pharisee. She could care less who's there. This guy's like, oh, I can't believe that she's there. She could care less. She weeps at the feet of Jesus. Her tears fall on his feet. She takes her hair and wipes his feet with her hair as one of the greatest expressions of humility, humiliation, and adoration. Jesus uses this moment to teach this truth. He or she who is forgiven much loves much why because the woman sees grace as clearly as anyone has ever seen it and the moment she sees it for what it is the grace of jesus christ where she deserves sin death and punishment the only reaction she can muster the only proper is the most beautiful display of adoration we might see in scripture when we get grace we get busted we get broken and we are filled with love see what happens here the people like okay grace say free grace that means if i'm forgiven for everything and sin doesn't matter i'm just gonna do whatever i want ah that's not how it works the person who gets grace is overwhelmed that a wretched sinner like you and me would be forgiven and you want to spend the rest of your life adoring the one who set you free you will do whatever you can not to earn his favor you've already gotten it you want to express your love and appreciation to the one who has given you the greatest possible gift you can ever receive, the gift of grace. Not deserve, unmerited, completely given as we receive by faith the love of Jesus Christ. You want to help grace uh, f- uh, filter to the surface of your life? You can ask yourself two questions. I heard these two questions again this week. I was reminded. Question number one is this. What do I deserve? What do I deserve? Death, wrath, punishment. Question number two. What have I received? In Christ, if I'm saved in Christ, uh, salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, mercy, grace. What do I deserve? Death. What have I received? Life. That'll cause grace to come out pretty quick upon our lives and humble us rightly before him. See, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Grace is a gift. I cannot earn this grace. It's given through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite hymns, is called Rock of Ages. I try to listen to it, I don't know, once every couple of weeks. It's just, the theology here blows me away. I just encourage you, train your hearts to let the theology of stuff like this to bring out the expression of gratitude and love for Jesus Christ. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Cleft, refuge, shelter. Let me hide myself in Christ. I need to hide myself in the Lord. Why? Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow. Okay? It's, it's what Jesus did. The work is finished. It is finished. Be of sin the double cure. Okay? What's the double cure here? Okay? The double cure is Jesus takes my wrath that I deserve and I get his purity. I get his righteousness. I get his innocence. That's the great exchange again. Next slide. Not the labors of my hands. Okay, this is so important right here, okay? You see this? Not the labors of my hands. You can work as hard as you want. You can exhaust yourself like Luther did. It'll never be enough. Can fulfill thy law's demands. You'll never be perfect. So many people are wandering around saying, if I can just be good, be good. You can't fulfill the law. The law requires perfection. You and I will never be perfect. Could my zeal no respite? No. Enough passion, I could ever have more passion than anyone has ever displayed and given to the Lord. It won't be enough. Could my tears forever flow, contrition and, and sorrow and crying and crying and crying and kissing those steps? They'll never be enough. Why? Because all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, solo Cristo, and thou alone. Only Jesus Christ can save us from that we cannot do. Next slide. Nothing, and I love this, this is so beautiful. Here's the natural result from solo Christo, solo gratia, solo fide. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come. To thee for, in ourselves, you are dead in sin, following Satan, children of wrath. I got nothing, nothing. Completely blind, pitiful, poor, and naked, as it says in Revelation. Helpless look to thee, here it is, for Grace. I cannot muster up grace. It is only given to me through Jesus Christ. Foul, filthy, stinky, wretched. Foul I am to the fountain fly. One of my favorite lines. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me, Savior, or I will die. Because I cannot save myself. And I cannot cleanse myself. And then every beautiful hymn, the next one, every beautiful hymn ends with eschatology, kind of looking at last times. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Why grace? The gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. Nothing I can do, nothing I can earn. It's grace. Sola gratia. This grace cannot be earned. Listen. But it can be received. How? Turn from sin, believe in Jesus Christ. Is that you today? Have you been waiting your whole life to hear this message on grace? I wonder. I wonder. Your whole life for this moment right now to hear this message on grace. Remember, it's not what you do, it's what's already been done in Jesus. Turn from sin, believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the moment you believe, you'll never be the same again. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, and Pilgrim's Progress was the direct fruit of the Reformation, unquestionably. Pilgrim's Progress, the second best-selling book of all time, second only to the Bible. Bunyan, discovering the gospel of grace, he said this, Now did my chains fall off. My chains fell off my legs indeed, and I was loosed from afflictions and irons. Charles Wesley, one of the greatest hymn writers ever, discovers the Salvation by grace alone and Christ alone. He wrote this on the screen for you. Beautiful, beautiful words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's our world. Maybe that's some of us right now. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. That's it. My chains fell off. Jesus Christ breaks the chains of bondage and sin and death. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what the gospel does. It sets us free. Finally, the famous, famous slave ship captain, John Newton. Horrible life as a master of slaves. Wicked sin. Awful, awful life. He, first one he would say, then completely astounded by the grace of Jesus Christ. It was Newton who was led to write was probably the most famous song in the world today. Isn't that interesting, eh? The most famous song across this world is a song on Sola Gratia. Sola Gratia from the person who's the most influential person, not even close, in the entire world and universe, Solo Cristo. Here's what Newton wrote. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wretch, I once was lost, but now I'm found Was blind, but now I see. Listen, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. That's beautiful writing. See he's saying there? It was grace that taught me to fear the Lord, taught my heart to fear. But then it's the same grace that teaches me to not fear the world or fear man. Grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Every single one of us saved by grace will not get to the end and say, hey Jesus, I did good, didn't I? Every single one of us will fall on our faces before the Lord, absolutely pulverized at the grace of Jesus Christ that has saved us from death and sin and the wrath of God itself. Honestly, solo gratia, incredible, astounding, amazing grace to humans who deserve death Jesus offers the grace of life. Thank you, Lord. Amen.